This is Angus King, and welcome to Inside Maine, where we talk about issues of national importance, but also those that are applicable to Maine, or how a bill that we're working on down here will impact Maine. And today we're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, the bill that passed about a month ago that deals with climate change, healthcare costs, inflation, a very important piece of legislation. And uh, I want to start our discussion with a sort of general overview with uh, my good friend Tim Kaine, senator from Virginia, one of the architects of this bill. Tim, give us the sort of overall view of uh, why you think this is important and uh, the, the provisions that you particularly like. Um, I will, Angus, and thanks for having me on, and thanks for your great work on this. You and I came into the Senate at the same time, and it's one of three things that's happened in the Senate during the time I've been here that that passed by one vote. And when that happens, you realize the power of one vote is really important, because had you or I not been here, it might not have passed. So here, here's what the Inflation Reduction Act does in large scale, and then I'll tell you some pieces about it I really like. It tackles one area that continually bedevils Americans in their pocketbooks, and, that, and that's healthcare costs. In particular, focusing on bringing down the price of prescription drugs for seniors under the Medicare program. And because the Medicare program is such a big program, it'll also have an example, I think, that will bring down prescription drug prices more generally. We also try to advance the clean energy economy so that we can embrace a cleaner energy future for the good of the planet, but also for American jobs. We can be innovators in clean energy, and by doing so, bring down people's energy costs. So that's the inflation reduction, the two pillars of the bill, healthcare costs, energy costs. These are things that every American family struggles with. And then finally, we wanna be responsible on how we fund these programs. And so, we do tax reform, particularly to close tax loopholes, and we raise dramatically more money than we need for the first two pillars, and by doing so, make a huge reduction in the deficit and debt over the course of this bill. So it will reduce the, the deficit and debt dramatically over the next 10 years. So those are the, the three things that the bill does. And in terms of what I like best, look, guaranteeing more support for people who are buying health insurance in the exchanges so that if they're low income, up to 400% of poverty, they can get subsidies to help make health insurance more affordable. Angus, for the first time in many years, the insurance companies in Virginia, for example, have filed their rates for next year and premiums are going down. They're going down dramatically and we're gonna provide subsidy support to make premiums even cheaper. Uh, prescription drugs for seniors. We'll negotiate on prices. That'll help bring prescription drugs down. We'll cap insulin costs for seniors who have diabetes at $35 a month. And we'll put a total out-of-pocket cap for seniors on Medicare for uh, prescription drugs at $2,000 a year, a little less than $200 a month, which is really, really good for seniors, particularly those who take multiple medications. So those are just some of the items, but um, maybe the, the thing about in Virginia that has been really embraced is we also do a permanent fix of the Black Lung Benefit Program. So these hardworking miners in Virginia and elsewhere who've kept our nation's lights on by mining coal over the years, as coal is a declining industry, the fund that protects them if they get black lung, which about one out of every five career miners in Appalachia will get, 
um, that fund was inadequately funded. The finances weren't appropriate. And we increased the per ton tax on coal that's mined to a dollar a ten a ton. Not very high, but by increasing it just to that, we can permanently fund the Black Lung Benefit Program and meet our promise to these miners all over the country who have helped us have reliable power. Well, listen, I, I think one of the points that you made is important. You know, I hear criticisms of the bill saying, oh, these are the Democrats being big spenders and the fact is this bill is fully paid for and in fact produces an excess which is going right straight against the deficit. That was a provision that I said, I'm not voting for it without that. And I think Joe Manchin said the same thing and it, it got in there. And uh, it's the first realistic bite out of the national debt that I've seen since I've been here for 10 years. So, And the funding is principally from a, imposing a minimum tax of 15% on corporations, get this, that make more than a billion dollars of profit a year. Every now and then somebody says, oh, they're taxing and they're going to tax middle class people and middle class businesses. No, there's not a business in Maine. And I don't know if there are too many in Virginia that make a profit of a billion dollars a year. And believe it or not, there are something like 150 of those companies in that category that pay little or zero taxes. And it's hard for me to argue to a welder at Bath Ironworks up in Maine that he should pay more in taxes than this some international multinational corporation that are reporting billion dollar profits but paying no taxes. So that's how the bill is funded principally. And then additional funding for the IRS, which we're going to talk about later. I'm going to talk with the CPA about. And of course, some people are saying, oh, they're going to send agents to your house. No, nobody under $400,000, any extra audits, they're going to audit where the money is, which is among the super wealthy who are taking advantage of our tax laws and going beyond taking advantage of their tax laws and just plain not paying. And uh, that's what that's all about. Plus, uh, getting more people in the IRS that can actually help taxpayers. One of the biggest complaints I get is people trying to call the IRS and nobody answers the phone. It's because they've been underfunded for the last almost 15 years. So I think the, the funding side of this is, is important. And of course, you talked about the healthcare side. I don't know if you saw it, Tim, but recently we hit 92% of the American people with health insurance, the highest in history. Highest in history. And, and Angus, it was right about that same time. Then the uh, insurance companies in Virginia filed their rates for next year, and their rates are actually going down, which is uh, just amazing. And then you add the premium support into it. It's really helpful. I do want to say to the Mainers who are listening to this, Angus played a critical role in the making sure that this bill was a deficit reducer. Angus, I don't know that in the 10 years you and I have been in the Senate, we've passed a bill that had a, as big a, an anti-deficit effect as this bill. And Angus was also key on the financing, making sure that we honor a, pre a promise that President Biden made that we're not going to increase taxes on people who make less than $400,000. And so this minimum tax for the massive corporations that make more than a billion in profit and closing loopholes, particularly loopholes that are mostly advantageous to wealthy people, that is what gets us this not only well-funded programs, but it also gets us the deficit reduction. Well, here's a funny story. We were having a press conference to announce this uh, minimum tax for the billion-dollar corporations, and 
my colleagues were kept talking about they wanted people to pay their fair share. They wanted these corporations to pay their fair share. I said, uh, hell, I just want them to pay any share. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's right. they were, and a lot of them were paying zero, which is uh, which is just absolutely ridiculous. So if they're telling their shareholders how much money they're making, then uh, they ought to pay some share back to the taxpayers. And uh, because otherwise, you and I and everybody else that's listening to this is is subsidizing those corporations. But it was, as you say, it was it was one vote, took all night. It was a, I don't know, 27-hour process. Uh, our friend Patrick Leahy was in a wheelchair after having broken his hip, and he he was in a lot of pain, but he, he stayed through the night. And I'll be honest with you, it shouldn't have been a party-line vote. In fact, I told somebody, Tim, this was only a party-line vote in the U.S. Senate. In the, in the country, it was bipartisan. All the polling on the elements of the bill were strongly bipartisan, like 75% to 25%. The only place it wasn't bipartisan was in the U.S. Senate. And Angus, I certainly saw that. You know, we we did this and then we went on a recess where we were traveling around our states. And I did three weeks of very intense travel in Virginia to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, but also the infrastructure bill and the veterans bill that we just did. And everywhere in the state, from my hometown of Richmond to Appalachia, people were thrilled about this bill. And I'll say it, particularly in Appalachia, it's my reddest part of the state, but it's where there are coal miners. And, and these miners and their families and the mining retirees, they are such patriotic, hardworking people. A few years ago, their health care plan for retirees was about to go bust. We fixed it. A couple of years later, the pension plan for retirees was about to go bust. We fixed that. This was the third of three. And I went back into Castlewood, Virginia, in the UMW compact office, and I sat down with all these miners and I said, three for three, we made you a promise and it wasn't easy. And you came up and advocated. These miners were here. You, you've seen them in their camouflage T-shirts and camouflage baseball hats. But we were three for three. We kept our promise to them. And um, I, that's just to validate the point you made that, yeah, it might have been a partisan vote in the Senate. It wasn't partisan around Virginia, people are very glad we took the steps that we did. And we haven't talked too much about the clean energy advance, and you're a clean energy guy from a past chapter of your life, $330 billion investment to rocket forward on clean energy so that America, which has a leadership position, can move way out ahead of everybody else, create jobs, do good things for the planet. And one part of the bill is $10 billion to invest in communities that are transitioning away from having been really focused on fossil fuel production. Again, that will benefit Appalachian, Virginia, and some other parts of the country. Yeah, you can sense Joe Manchin's presence in that provision. And he's been saying all along, I think he's right, that these people, as you've pointed out, that have helped to power this country and worked hard and been patriotic Americans ought to have some consideration as the world is changing and and as uh, a lot of the jobs of their traditional economy has been uh, undercut, helping them to find alternatives, to find other jobs, uh, you know, that's that's part of our responsibility, it seems to me. And you're right. I mean, uh, I got to say, you know, talking about climate and, and clean energy, you literally can't turn on the TV any day without some climate disaster. I talked to somebody who was in Pakistan, huge flood, a third of the country was underwater, hundreds of thousands of people displaced, a, a storm this week in the Caribbean uh, that's devastating uh, Puerto Rico. I mean, fires in the in the West, it, it's, uh, it, just, it just keeps coming at us. So uh, 
if we don't if we don't keep working on this, our grandchildren are going to say, "Where were you when the climate was going to pieces?" And and Mainers and Virginia. So in Virginia, it's extreme weather events and flooding in Appalachia, and it's sea level rise in Hampton Roads. And in Maine, you're seeing fisheries dramatically affected by warming uh, sea temperatures. So this isn't like a tomorrow issue; it's a today issue. Absolutely. Well, Tim, thanks for taking the time, and uh, we're going to talk to some folks in Maine about some of the specifics of the of the bill. But uh, thanks for all the work that you did to get us here. And uh, we're just going to keep plugging away. And I used to joke about Congress not getting much done. But I'll tell you, in the last six months, uh, infrastructure bill, this bill, uh, the veterans burn pit bill, gun safety, gun safety, mental health. I mean, that's a pretty good list. Getting something done and the really good parking, I think, are the best parts of this job. <laughs> Well, you guys in Maine, you're lucky to have Angus, and I'm, I get count myself lucky to be his friend and colleague. Take care, you guys. Thanks, Tim. See you later, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stay with us on Inside Maine. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Inside Maine. We're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, which worked on health care costs, on energy costs, and how we can move the country forward in a number of areas. And my next guest is Noel Bonham, who's the executive director of AARP in Maine, which I think, Noel, don't you guys have like 100,000 members? You've got a big crowd in Maine. We have, you know, over 200,000 members in Maine. Wow. Well, listen, talk to me about how you reacted to the Inflation Reduction Act and what you think the most important provisions are. I think um, how I personally reacted was, was uh, you know, a huge sigh of relief, uh, as I'm sure many Mainers um, experienced the same and felt the same. This really took a very long time to happen, and, and it was very, very important. And so, we were very excited. Our members were very relieved um, and because it really has a huge, huge impact on, on you know, older Mainers across the state. We all know that the underlying problem of skyrocketing um, drug prices affects nearly every family in the state. Um, and, and so this is an issue we hear about often from our members who are trying to you know, decide between buying medication, paying for medication, and paying for basic necessities with the Medicare Part D provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act, it really you know, is, is monumental and it took a really long time getting there, but we're really happy it finally happened. In terms of the provisions that you're talking about, the, the most important one is the fact that, you know, Medicare can actually, Medicare can actually negotiate, you know, prescription drug prices, I think is significant. I was particularly happy about that because I think the very first bill that I introduced when I came to the Senate 10 years ago was a bill to require negotiation of prescription drug prices in in Medicare. And people often wonder how this place works. And what my experience is, you work on something, you work on it, you go, you know, and it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And then all of a sudden, the stars aligned, as they did a month ago, and it happens. And uh, it's it's a huge breakthrough because people don't know this, but when the Medicare drug benefit passed, I think in 2005, the law expressly said that Medicare could not negotiate a bulk discount for its drugs. That was put in by the pharmaceutical industry. And it doesn't make any sense because the VA can do it. 
Medicaid could do it, but Medicare never could. So this is a big deal. Do your members see it that way? They do see it that way. I mean, you know, but I mean, now we can say that it's just common sense change, but it should have been done. But the fact that Medicaid could not negotiate for so long. Any good company uses their buying power to get a better deal, you know, whether it's Costco or Sam's Club and, you know, but now Medicaid can do that as well. And I think members are very excited. I think, you know, they're looking forward to when they'll actually start seeing the results of some of those negotiated uh, drug pricing and some of the provisions that will kick in, you know, next year and by 2025. And I think that's significant. And I think members are really looking forward to that. How about the $2,000 a year cap on out-of-pocket? If you're taking some of those expensive cancer drugs, that could save your house. I mean, that's a huge help, I would think. Absolutely. I think from starting 2025, there will be a $2,000 annual cap on what people have to pay for their drugs in Part D. And that is significant. And like you mentioned, Senator, like for someone who's on 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 like a six figure cancer drug you know even if they only have to pay a percentage of the price of the of the drug it still might mean about $10,000 or more out of pocket each year and many medicare beneficiaries simply do not have that kind of financial capacity they do not have those financial resources to cover um the kind of cost uh, for drugs they, they need to stay healthy and in some cases just to stay alive so that is going to be significant i think the $2,000 cap per year and then there's an insulin cap as well uh, for diabetics. It was voted down, unfortunately, for reasons I absolutely don't understand, but at least we have it for Medicare recipients. That's right. And you know, the $35 you know, cap, I think, is going to be significant for folks, especially for folks who have, you know, who are diabetic and it's a chronic um, condition. They will need to have this for the rest of their lives. And in many cases, they're having to pay for something and pay for something to stay alive. And, and if the, the cost is just skyrocketing at a rate that's exponential, you know, it just was debilitating, you know. Some of when we hear about some of the experiences of many of our members who speak about, you know, the 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 impact of high prescription drug costs, it's it's heart wrenching. It you know, it's plain wrong. Uh, the, the the things that they have to do to kind of make that work, to have medications accessible to them in a way that they can manage. So I think in the thirty five dollar uh, cap is going to be significant. Well, one of the really frustrating things about insulin is that it's off patent. The guy who invented insulin gave it away for a dollar. And unfortunately, it's gone. Uh, there are two or three companies that make it, and it's gone from something like 20 or $30 a month to a couple of hundred or more. And uh, they're just, uh, you know, I, I just, well, you can tell. I, I'm not usually speechless, but, but that one really bothers me. Yeah, but if only, you know, other basic, you know, amenities or, you know, other, for example, milk or gas, you know, um, the, the price of those things grew at the same rate as prescription drug costs. Gas would cost like about $12 a gallon. Milk would oh, cost about $12 a gallon, you know, and, and just the, keeping that in perspective is significant. And, and the fact that we could not stop that from happening for all these years, I think, is also appalling. But we're here now and it's happening and many manners, I think, are going to um, really benefit significantly from from these provisions um, in, in the Inflation Reduction Act. It wasn't easy, as you know. It, it ended up being a 27-hour voting session 
and uh, there were uh, probably, uh, well, I don't really remember how many, but there were a lot of tie votes and the vice president had to had to break the tie. Here's a funny little story. If you were watching that day on Sunday afternoon, the last vote occurred. The vice president was there. She broke the tie. The bill passed. And I was on the floor and I went up to, to speak to her. And if you saw, you saw me leaning over and talking to her. And you think, well, Senator King is talking to her about the bill or policy. No, I was showing her pictures of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> that, that, that was the that was a deal because she she'd met my daughter. But uh, anyway, it was uh, it, it was quite a moment. Tell me, uh, Noel, what other issues are on the minds of, uh, of uh, seniors in Maine of your membership? I suspect housing may be one of them. Housing is a big one. Um, and, you know, especially I think um, the, the, the housing crisis um, has been exaggerated by the pandemic. And, you know, and, and, and I think that's just has taken it into a whole new realm. And um, in, in terms of um, affordability, in terms of, you know, even being able to access sound housing, um, which, you know, when I use the word sound, I'm using it very broadly in terms of like housing that's accessible, affordable, um, and it's, it, it's you know, in places where they are able to access um, amenities without really having to go through a lot of uh, hardship. Uh, so that's 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 one that's really big, and another one which is I, I know is one of your favorite um, um, issues because I think you really see the importance of it. Broadband is another big one. That's on the way. The uh, the, the the infrastructure bill that was passed earlier this year, there should be sufficient funding there for affordable, high speed broadband for everybody in Maine, and that's in the works right as you and I are talking, and I'm I'm really excited and encouraged about that. So are we, and, and we're trying to do a whole lot of work with our members, and, and as you know, we have very active uh, volunteer advocates who are right there, and some of the best people I could, you know, one could wish they could work with, and, um, and you know, but the work, we were, we were realizing that a lot of the work when in connection to broadband is working at the county level with local town governances because they may not see broadband as important as you know um, as the older you know person living in their community and not only for telehealth not only for economic uh, you know um access to opportunities um to economic opportunities rather and you know even to um to address isolation so they when they don't see it the same way it becomes an uphill battle like trying to get them to commit to that work and to you know making sure that their communities are connected because broadband really is going to you know is, is important especially in a state like ours which Absolutely. is so rural and so spread out well, you need to keep evangelizing. You and I and a lot of other people are going to keep making that happen. And, and as you say, it's particularly important to seniors for things like being connected to the family. Telehealth is a huge deal. Let me mention one other thing. I, my new project, and I'm looking forward to working with you on this, is fall prevention. Falling down. Falls are one of the biggest problems for seniors. And one of my frustrations is that Medicare will pay for a broken hip but they won't pay to put a grab bar in your shower. I'm really working on pushing the federal government to be more aggressive about helping people to prevent falls because that's a lot better than, than having a broken hip or for having Medicare pay for a broken hip. So 
I'm, I'm going to be sitting down and, and talking to you. I want, I want ideas about how we can really ramp that up because it's, a, it's an epidemic now across the country. I would love to have that opportunity to talk with you, Senator. I think ARP has some great resources that you know that we share with our members. We'd like to share it with you as well in terms of the fall prevention work that we're doing. Uh, but mostly, I think some of the provisions that you're you are advocating for, I think, are so key and so important. I, I think I think we tend to be a, a society that doesn't believe in prevention as much. We believe in like putting resources after the fact and you know reactive resources, which you know I think we'd do so much better if we if we looked at prevention as 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 a way to kind of really address issues in our society. And I think this is one of those things where I think you, you nailed it by saying, you know, it'd be great to have some of those provisions in there as well. Well, one of one of one of the things I I always like to say is that the the cheapest uh, healthcare procedure is the one you don't have to do, and it saves Medicare, it saves the society, it saves insurance, it saves all of us uh, money, and and it's something we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go to work on. Well, Noel, great to talk to you. Thanks for your great work with AARP. I have always enjoyed our uh, tele town halls. We got to do another one of those sometime. Uh, it's a really it's really fun for me and and uh, get a chance to answer questions and, and, and talk to your members. So, Noel Bonham, thanks a lot, and thanks for the work you're doing at AARP. And thank you, Senator, for your leadership and on, on, on helping pass the Inflation Reduction Act. You got it. That's what you hired me for. <laughs> you're doing a great job. Thank you. Stay with us on Inside Maine. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and we're talking today about the Inflation Reduction Act, the bill that was passed about a month ago in the Congress that deals principally with health care and energy, and clean energy in particular. And our next guest is Jeremy Payne. Jeremy's the head of the uh, Energy Association, uh, Renewable Energy Association in Maine. Jeremy, you have to tell me the formal name, but uh, it's, a, it's a job that Jeremy has been doing very well for many years, working with hydro and wind and biomass and solar, uh, which is absolutely booming in Maine. So, Jeremy, first, uh, did you believe it when the bill passed? I mean, you must have been uh, uh, wondering if this was ever going to make it. No. I mean, the short answer is no, I didn't. You know, we've, we've talked a, a lot, uh, both state and nationally, about the need to do more clean energy for a long time. And it has always seemed to be one of those things where when you have one-on-one -on -one conversations, there's strong bipartisan support for doing something. But then when you bring people together, there's a lot of different ideas about how to get it done and not wanting to leave behind some of these core industries and, and key states that have really been, um, you know, working in the fossil fuel industry for, for decades. So, no, I didn't. So, um, you know, when this started to come about and, and folks like yourself and first, thank you for your leadership on this. And I'm, I'm certainly glad that you and folks like Senator Kane, Senator Manchin and, and and others were able to come together and find some middle ground here. But no, I definitely did not think it was going to happen. Not not to sound too cynical, but I've seen it not happen too many times. You're, in the past. I didn't believe it myself a month before, but uh, these things happen sometimes. Listen, tell me uh, what you think the impact will be in Maine of the clean energy provisions. I mean, I think that the 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 benefits will be tremendous. Um, I think what we're talking about is an act that's projected to produce uh, enough clean power to fuel every home in the country by 2030. So that is that is transformative for our for our country and certainly for the state of Maine. Um, also, 
The other thing that isn't often realized, Jeremy, that renewable energy by and large is capital intensive. In other words, building a dam or a wind project or putting a solar farm in, but then there's no fuel cost. And that's what people forget, that, that that then you're immune from the roller coaster of uh, fossil fuel prices, which is going to hit us pretty hard this winter. And that's, you know, people say, well, will this bill really reduce prices? It's going to reduce prices enormously once we get uh, in the full transition to, to uh, renewable energy that isn't subject to uh, the ups and downs of the fossil fuel market. That's exactly right. I mean, ultimately, what we have to do as a country is to embrace and grow inflation proof fuels. You know, the country is doing a lot of conversations around pricing and inflation. And the more opportunity we have to bring uh, online inflation proof fuels like wind and solar and tidal, uh, the better off we're all going to be. You know, homeowners, business owners, they need to be able to understand what they're going to be paying for electricity for the foreseeable future. They cannot see these sudden spikes that come up because ultimately then we're forcing people to have to choose between things like groceries, medicine, or do I pay my light bill? Uh, and that's just not, that's not what a, a modern society should have to be enduring. So I, mean, I think the, the other exciting part about the Inflation Reduction Act is the jobs. I mean, we're talking about the creation of uh, 500,000 clean energy jobs. I mean, that is tremendous. Uh, and then you combine that with the environmental benefits, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 40%. So whether you are somebody who prioritizes the economy or prioritizes protecting the environment, there's good news for, for, for both. Uh, and that's what makes this bill particularly unique. You think it'll create jobs in Maine? I definitely do. Uh, I mean, I think what what companies are looking for is consistency. And one of the things that we've struggled uh, with as a country is these sort of boom and bust cycles around energy. You know, we, we pass production tax credits or investment tax credits that make it easier and cheaper to build new renewable projects, but they come and go. They're in place for two years or three years and then they go away. So you see huge growth in new renewable megawatts. And then when they fall apart, uh, or they go away, you see you see the development and the investment shrink. So I think one of the things that's really exciting about the Inflation Reduction Act is we're talking about a much longer cycle of 10 years. So what I think that allows the average consumer in Maine to do is to pay less, because ultimately the cost of building these projects, the cost of financing these projects comes down, and that ultimately shows up on the bills that you and I pay. I also think what the 10-year cycle does is it gives the opportunity for developers to have conversations with host communities. A lot of times somebody has an idea, let's build a wind farm here or a solar project there, and they have to get the project going in order to be eligible for one of these tax credits. So sometimes that can short circuit the amount of time you have to go into a community, listen to what their concerns are, what their needs are, and try and address those. But with a longer lead time, more runway, it allows for longer conversation, hopefully more benefits for host communities and more positive dialogue between the host community members and the developers. You know, people are surprised, Jeremy, that that solar is is viable in Maine. We think of Maine as being in the north, but actually, Maine is on the same latitude as as southern France or northern Italy. I mean, we have a very good solar resource, and uh, it seems like everywhere I drive, I was I drove up, I was down east over the weekend. Uh, you see, you see solar projects springing up. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that there is this misconception because of our longer winters and obviously the snow that 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 we all experience here that solar can't work here. But that's just not true. I mean, it, it absolutely can and does work here. And I think we've seen in recent years, not just that you can build it and it will produce electricity, but that it will do it at very, very low costs. 
the Public Utilities Commission here in Maine ran uh, a bid process a couple of years ago, and the winning bids averaged 3.4 cents per kilowatt hour. I mean, that is dramatically low for renewable that, prices. That's for solar. That is all. That is all solar. That's all grid scale, larger scale solar. So you're not talking about the solar, you know, we see on people's roofs or sometimes on buildings. These are larger solar fields, um, but still three, three and a half cent solar. That's that's sort of the holy grail that we've been chasing as a country and a state for decades, and it's here. That that is an amazing development. And one of the questions we have to address, though, is getting that power around the state, getting it, having the sufficient transmission uh, capability, so that. Uh, you can you can put those projects in and they can inter, interconnect with the grid. What are, what are the other benefits of this bill that you see for, that'll be beneficial to Maine? Yeah, and Angus, you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, to me, I think one of the things I've noticed just in the last few years that feels new with the energy policy dialogue is to see our elected officials in Washington and locally finally understanding and recognizing that we have to invest in infrastructure. There's always been conversations that we need to do, you know, more clean power. Um, but that was sort of where the conversation ended. We would create contracting opportunities and projects would get built, but we wouldn't talk about, all right, well, how do we bring those clean electrons from the power plant location to power our homes and businesses? And so the act envisions another $30 billion in grants and loan programs for states and our utilities to build out a cleaner, more modern grid. And that's that's been sort of, to me, that's one of the secret sauces of the Inflation Reduction Act is the recognition that we need that infrastructure and that there's actually funding to support it. But people have to understand, Jeremy, that getting to a renewable future may mean building things. You can't be in favor of electronic vehicle, electric vehicles, and against uh, mining the lithium that's necessary for the batteries, and you can't be for renewable energy and not for the transmission system that's necessary to get the energy there. I mean, that's that's something that I think we're, we're the society is going to have to face up to. Uh, that there you can't. There's no magic wand here. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the joke I've made is, you know, unless we figure out a way to site a whole bunch of power plants on islands and somehow Bluetooth the power to the mainland, I, you know, I'm just not sure that we're going to be able to do it without any impacts anywhere. You know, that's there's still an opportunity to make sure that we're siting these things appropriately and sizing them appropriately. So we're not going to put them anywhere and everywhere because they can't, shouldn't, and won't go everywhere. But you're right. There does need to be an acknowledgement that there is going to be a change in the way we see our communities and experience our communities. But the truth is if we were to start our, our country over and say, let's electrify it, I highly doubt everybody would say, great, let's put up utility poles every 20 feet across every inch of the country. But the reality is that's what we did and people don't even see them anymore. anymore. They're just part of our view. And so I think that is the, the, that's where we will end up with wind and solar and, and hydro and tidal is people will get used to it, but certainly change is hard. That's not to say there's not going to be difficult conversations that need to take well, place. Well, one of the one of the provisions that I'm most excited about, and and both Susan Collins and I have been working on this for some time, is energy storage. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners are going to say, "Yeah, wind is great, but it doesn't blow all the time, and the sun doesn't shine all the time. I want the lights to go on in the middle of the night when it's not windy." That's where storage comes in. If we can, and that's where a lot of it is research. Frankly, we need to develop battery technology and other technologies for storage. And once we can cross that, make that cost-effective grid-scale energy storage, then we can realistically talk about an all-electric future without fossil fuels. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. That's where storage comes in. I mean, that's that's the real the real key component here is making sure that we have a viable storage uh, industry that's able to support the intermittency of wind and solar and tidal and other resources. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think what we have to bear in mind is that, you know, wind blows strong at night when everybody turns their power off um, and, and there's less demand for power. So prices come down because there's there's less demand for it. So that's a great time for us to be loading up all of these batteries full of wind power uh, and then when we all wake up in the morning we turn on the coffee maker and the microwaves and the dishwasher um, now we put all of that wind power back into the grid and that should help smooth out some of the pricing peaks that we've seen and i think one of the things that the act does in particular that's really helpful in making sure that the storage industry continues to move forward is sets aside 30 billion dollars for domestic manufacturing of clean energy components solar panels, wind turbines, and batteries for storage. I mean, those are the things we're gonna need to do. We need to make those investments now so that they'll be ready three years, five years, and 10 years down the road. And there are two reasons that's important. One is jobs here in the US and in Maine. And the other is not being dependent on other countries, including China, that is a, a, a rival, I'll put it that way, put it kindly, uh, we've learned in what's going on in Europe right now, you don't want to be dependent on other countries for the critical uh, parts of, of your your infrastructure, keeping the lights on. Yeah, I mean, you end up these, you know, geopolitical issues start to impact, you know, the, the, the price of my electricity in central Maine. I mean, that if that's not, you know, a clear indicator that we need to be taking care of as much of our energy needs as possible locally, I'm not sure what is. Um, you know, we've been on this this fossil fuel pricing merry-go-round for decades and it keeps returning us to the exact same place that we find ourselves now so we have to make those investments in storage we have to make those investments in on and offshore wind and solar and tidal and biomass and hydro and i think the the act really helps us move in that direction pretty aggressively and i like the idea of made in maine and that's what we're talking about here that's exactly right maine made clean energy is is the perfect type Jeremy, thanks so much, and thanks for the work that you're doing. Look forward to working with you as we implement this bill and and uh, move forward. But I think it is it really will be a, a significant uh, breakthrough, uh, both in terms of jobs, in terms of infrastructure, also in terms of prices, as, as you and I discussed. So, Jeremy, thanks a lot. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Angus. Appreciate your leadership and uh, how great you represent us in, in Washington on behalf of the whole state of Maine. Thank you. Stay with us on Inside Maine. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Inside Maine. Today we're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed the Congress about a month ago and deals principally in the side of energy, clean energy for the future, and also cutting health care and prescription drug costs. And the question is, how is it paid for? And there are a couple of provisions that involve, as I mentioned earlier, taxation of high-income billion-dollar corporations at a, at a minimum tax level, but also uh, funding for the IRS. And we have uh, Mike Santo with us, who's, I believe, Mike, are you the chair of the, of the CPA, of the Certified Public Accountants of Maine? Is that, uh, is that your, your title? I'm the treasurer over there, um, but I also lead the, I'm the chair of the taxation committee. Well, listen, uh, the, the treasurer of a CPA committee sounds to me like a pretty important job. I, I just want to ask you, I mean, we, there's been criticism of this bill that where there's going to be an army of IRS agents coming pounding on your door. Let's talk about the 
the importance of getting the sufficient resources to the IRS to respond to taxpayers and also a, a 21st century uh, software system. Talk to me about how you view uh, this, these provisions. I'm optimistic about them, you know, cautiously optimistic simply because you know it's uh, it's a 10-year plan really what we're looking at here um, roughly 80 billion dollars allocated to the irs over 10-year period so this isn't a situation where the irs next week is going to have 87,000 new agents going up at middle class houses demanding taxes that's definitely not the case uh the irs you know they've um they've they've taken a pounding over the past you know decade or so with um budget cuts and uh, a loss of, of individuals to work there um, compared to like, I think around 2010, you know, they're down quite a bit. You know, they're, they're operating on old software. They're operating on old technology. Um, you know, I'm surprised <laughs> that, they, you know, the last few years they've been able to get anything done. Um, Congress tends to add a lot to their plate maybe not necessarily thinking about how they're going to get it done, but um, you know, we, we add it to their plate and, they still managed to make it something happen, but unfortunately, um, uh, as people are retiring from there, um, they're not hiring as quickly. They, they don't have the technology to keep up, and things are just, um, you know, getting further and further behind. I, I heard they were still using COBOL, and I don't know if there are that many people around that know how to even write COBOL anymore. I mean, that's a computer program from the 70s. You sort of suggested this. It's amazing they've been able to do what they've done and process 300 you know, million returns uh, in a year. Yeah, I, I looked into that a little bit. Uh, yeah, like you said, it's about a, uh, a program from about the 70s um, created just for businesses. Um, it's really just a data in, data out um, program. Uh, since then, and I'm not a technology guru by any, by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but um, you know, since then, there's been a lot more, um, more sophisticated, easier to use, uh, more common programs um, that have come out, like C plus um, languages that are more commonly used. And unfortunately, uh, I'm sure that the IRS and other, and probably even software vendors that are creating our tax software, they're struggling to try to connect what they're producing into a format that the IRS can use and COBOL. Well, I do want to put one thing to bed. Uh, are there any companies in Maine that will have to pay the alternative minimum 15% tax because they're reporting more than a billion dollars of annual profit? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> I don't think so um, either. If there are, no clients on my list. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that 15% that, that is a very, very limited um, uh, structure. You know, that, that's really, there's maybe, you know, 100 or so companies that that's really going to apply to uh, across the entire country. But the revenues that it will produce will help us to not only support the clean energy and 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 uh, healthcare provisions, but also take a bite out of the out of the national debt. I mean, I can't remember voting for a bill here that expressly said three hundred billion dollars has to come off the, the the national debt. Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised myself. <laughs> now, one of the complaints we get in in our office is people that have trouble reaching the IRS. I mean, isn't I mean, we talked about the software, but they basically just don't have the people, is, is my understanding. And you mentioned 2010. They, they're, uh, they've been, their, their funding has been sort of going down ever since then. Uh, do you, as a professional who has to deal with them, is that, is that a problem for Maine taxpayers, is having somebody to answer the phone? 
Definitely. Um, you know, there's a lot of mixed information going out there right now about the situ- situation, given the IRS, uh, you know, calls. It, it's near impossible to, to get a hold of the IRS right now. They just don't have the people to answer the phones. And because of that, you know, they're getting millions of calls, especially during tax season, you know, multi-million uh, calls a day. You just can't get through. You get the courtesy uh, hang up is what we call it. Um, you answer a bunch of the prompts and then it says, you know, uh, we're experiencing too high call volume. Please try again later. And unfortunately, unless you're super lucky, you're not getting through. And if you're not getting through, your, your problem is not getting resolved. So the, so the reality is on this bill, instead of sending 87,000 agents to knock on your door, they are going to be hiring additional people to help you when you have a problem. I mean, that's, that's, it's really upside down from what is being uh, bandied about. Certainly. I mean, the IRS isn't just agents. There's administrative, there's customer service. Uh, of course, there are auditors that need to do auditing to bring in the revenue, um, either just reviewing returns or doing actual audits. Um, but yeah, customer service is a big one right now. We just don't have people to answer the phone. Even the tax practitioners, we have a special line we can call that's never available. Uh, so it's hard for us to help our clients. It's hard for the normal taxpayer um, that gets a tax bill that isn't in the know to to call up and say, hey, I got this bill, I don't understand it. Uh, you can't go into just any office nowadays either um, due to regulations with COVID and, and whatnot. So it's just all around very difficult to to assist taxpayers or taxpayers to even the system themselves. Well, I think a significant amount of this bill is dedicated to customer service personnel and uh, improvements in their technology, which ultimately will uh, lead to better service, quicker refunds, uh, better answering of questions, uh, and that's that was uh, that was the intent. It, it's been sort of uh, you know it became controversial there toward the end and they were talking about armed agents coming to your door and and uh, that was a, a little bit of uh, hyperventilation i think uh, but uh, yeah I, I make a difference i mean there are definitely irs agents that do carry guns it's part of the criminal investigation unit and they carry the guns because they are dealing with you know uh, intense situations dangerous situations um they go in they're auditing you know the fraudsters um, money laundering, um, illegal activities. Yeah, of course they're gonna, you know, just like any other, um, you know, uh, an officer that would be getting in that situation as well would have, would be armed. But that's, you know, a very, very minuscule portion of the IRS agents that deal with that. Well, that's, let, let's, uh, we're gonna, one thing I've learned around here is that Passing the bill is just the beginning. We've got to sort of stay on it and see how it's being administered. Uh, you can bet that I'm going to be working with the Treasury Department and the IRS to be sure that they're not using these funds to abuse uh, middle class taxpayers. I don't think that's they have that intention, but we're going to we're going to uh, keep an eye on them. And Mike, I'd like to ask you to to keep in touch as there are issues that you see as this is being implemented. Uh, you and the association are on the front line of dealing with the IRS and dealing with the tax laws. So uh, keep us informed. Uh, we, we, we're always looking for ideas and way we can make these things work better. And uh, you can help us do that. Yeah, certainly. Well, any final thoughts, Mike, on the IRS provisions? 
Yeah, I mean, just, you know, don't worry that there's, you're not going to get uh, a rude awakening by an IRS agent knocking at your door. Uh, <laughs> so just, uh, you know, if anything, this is, you know, no one's really a fan of the IRS. No one wants to pay taxes, uh, but we have to. That's how our government operates. That's how we, we get things done. Uh, and really giving the money to the IRS, it's only going to be a positive for all of us. So I think that well, for the if people are cheating, and breaking the law and not paying, that means you and I have to make up the difference. Exactly, uh, yeah. The average working man who gets a W-2 and, and withholding, he, he can't cheat if he wants to. It's all right there. And so uh, trying to uh, empower the IRS to go after, and I think I read that something like the top 1% in income accounts for like 30% of the lost revenue from cheating. So uh, that's yeah. where the money, remember Willie Sutton, uh, I suspect they're going to go to where the money is and it's going to help us balance the budget and pay for these important programs. Yep, I think so. And, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. We got to train these people. We got a lot of um, the baby boomers leaving the workforce and we're trying to hire a lot of new people to replace them. You can't just replace that experience overnight. Uh, so th there's going to be a ramp up period for certain but yeah, that's the hope. We're, we're hoping to be able to pick up on that lost revenue um, that uh, is estimated to be out there. Well, Mike, thank you very much for your time and, and for your good work on behalf of uh, Maine people and, and, and uh, thank your associates in the, in the uh, CPA community. It's great to be able to chat with you. And as I say, keep in touch and let us know, let us know from the field how it's going, because if they're not getting it right, uh, I want to know that and I want to be able to to uh, uh, to to try to put them back on the on the uh, path that we all hope that they're going to be on. So again, Mike Santo, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Senator. Take care. Yes, sir. Thanks for being with us on Inside Bain. We've been talking about the Inflation Reduction Act first with Senator Tim Kaine to give us sort of an overview. He was one of the architects of the bill and one of the heroes of of getting it passed. And then we talked to Noel Bonham from the AARP, 200,000 members in Maine that are going to benefit substantially, particularly from the prescription drug provisions uh, in the bill. Uh, then we talked to Jeremy Payne, who is involved with the energy side of these things and how the bill is going to move us toward a clean energy future. And finally, with Mike Santo, with the uh, CPAs in Maine, Certified Public Accountants, to talk about the tax provision and how it's not going to create 87,000 new IRS agents who are going to come knocking on your door. It's actually going to provide better service for Maine people and also collecting taxes from people who aren't paying that we're making up the difference for. So uh, I think what he gave us today was very informative, and I want to thank all of our guests, and thank you for joining us on Inside Maine. This is Angus King. Talk to you next time. <music>